Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down, everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The second reading can be found on page 1207, which is Hebrews Chapter 9, starting at verse 15. Page 1207. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect 
when the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet will, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And if you have a Bible handy, do turn back to that reading from Exodus chapter 24. And in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 82. And I hope you also received on the way in, in your little bundle of paperwork, a handout which is on a cream piece of paper. Just a little summary of where we're going in the next few minutes. You might find it helpful to have that handy as we go along this morning. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we do thank you very much for this wonderful picture of what it looks like to be part of your people in relationship with you. Please, would you thrill us and also show us what an enormous responsibility this is this morning. Please help us to understand how you'd have us live as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. My guess is that most of us have had that particular experience of attending someone else's wedding. Perhaps it's a a good friend, a family member, a work colleague. And of course, weddings are full of glittering confetti and group photographs and good food. But wedding days are also often days that are full of strong emotion. Of course, there'll be... um, feelings of joy and happiness for the couple at the front. It's a wonderful thing to see two people coming together, making vows and promises to one another that will be lifelong. It's a great picture. It's a wonderful, it's a joyful day. And it's it's even more joyful if there's been some backstory before the wedding day, some unlikely turn of events or some amazing story which has led to this remarkable occurrence happening. Uh, A day of great joy. Also, I think, a day of comparison. I think it's virtually impossible to attend someone else's wedding without thinking about our own relationships. Uh, There'll be some for whom that's uh, a very easy comparison. Perhaps we are experiencing a, a good marriage and it's just a joyful thing to watch someone else enter it. But my guess is that for many of us, that comparison is painful. There'll be some here today who have longed to be married but have never found someone to marry and so we feel a tremendous sense of hollowness or emptiness watching someone else enter marriage, perhaps even envy. There'll be others of us who have experienced married life and as we watch the couple at the front full of smiles and joy, we look at our own experience and it has been so very different Perhaps the early days have dwindled to a distant memory and what we experience now is much harder. 
You see, I think marriage is, as we watch other people get married, yes, tremendous joy, but also a day of comparison. And as we turn to Exodus 24, I suggest that that is how we should respond with all those emotions. For we are watching in this chapter not quite a wedding, but it is the coming together of two parties in a formal and significant relationship that involves promises and commitments. It is a covenant relationship unfolding before us. And there should be joy because these two coming together, it's a most remarkable backstory. You would never have thought of it. On one hand, at the front, there is God himself. And we've seen much throughout Exodus about who this God is. He is the most remarkable Lord of the universe. He is a nation-defeating, God-defeating, miracle-working, rescuing, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, faithful, caring God. But across the aisle is the people of Israel. And we've learned a great deal about the people of Israel. We've seen that they are people who are quick to doubt. They are people who have grumbled their way out of slavery following this wonderful God. They are a people who have made it very public that they would often at times prefer to be back in Egypt rather than in relationship with this God. And yet, here we have this remarkable moment as these two parties come together to form a covenant. Who would have thought of it? And yet here they are. It is a moment of great joy. But it is also a moment of profound comparison. For this ancient covenant ceremony is a window in onto our covenant relationship with Christ. Yes, there are differences and we'll see that through this morning. But the the shape, the pattern of what we discover in Exodus 24 is the pattern and shape of our covenant relationship in Christ. And so can I ask each one of us this morning, as we watch this relationship become established, what is our relationship like? For if we are Christians, then we are the bride of Christ. We too are in a covenant relationship with him. It is a most remarkable and unthinkable relationship. Who would have thought of Christ coming and um, entering into a relationship with people like me? And us here this morning. And yet, what does our relationship look like? I just wonder if we've been a Christian for a number of years, we have lost the initial urgency and clarity about which we had when we first embarked on that relationship with Christ. I wonder if we've lost our first love or grown distant. Have we lost the, the purpose of our relationship that we had so clearly at the beginning? It is, I think, good and right for us to compare our relationship with God with Exodus 24. I just wonder also if there'll be some here this morning as we go through the chapter and we'll realize that we've never experienced this kind of relationship with God. We'll come and watch with us and see what it looks like to be in relationship with God. The offer is there for anyone here this morning. So as we turn to Exodus 24, we see a people entering into relationship with God. And I want to bring out three hallmarks of this relationship. And you'll see that on the handouts. The first hallmark is this. We see in this relationship the book following God's pattern. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've seen how the people have been gathered um, out of Egypt, out of slavery. They've been brought by God to the mountain of God. And this mountain is a place where God has spoken to them. He has revealed to them how he wants them to live. And so Moses says in verse (coughs) 3, 
When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Verse 3 is talking about uh, the words and laws. That's the the Ten Commandments we saw two weeks ago, and then the, the, the case law from last week. The people hear, and they say yes. And then verse four, Moses writes down all the words. He puts them into a book. Then verse seven. He then took the book of the covenant and read it to all the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. (coughs) That is the right response. God's people should obey his words and laws. We've seen throughout this little gathering around the mountain why it makes such sense for God's people to obey his words. He is an awesome, holy, fearful God. And it is very wise indeed for God's people to take his way of living, his pattern for life, very seriously. And we've seen throughout Exodus that God doesn't just rescue his people out of slavery so we can go around living our lives for our own purposes. No, he rescues us so that we may be a people who follow his patterns for life. And they are good patterns. His laws are are the means by which we live a good life. Think of a, a couple at the front of a church building saying their wedding vows to one another. They'll say things like, for better or for worse, for, for sickness and in health, all that I have I share, and to love and to cherish, till death us depart. Wonderful words. But of course, as we hear those promises, our great longing as those who hear them is not just that they remain words spoken at a service, but they bear resemblance to everyday life after the service, that they bear fruit in action, that these words create the, the pattern for married life in the future. And so too here in Exodus 24, the way that the relationship between God and his people is to be worked out is for the people of God to hold on to and obey the promises they've made to him. That is the pattern of life they are to follow. What about us as Christians living thousands of years later? We don't relate to the law in Exodus in the same way that God's people did back at the mountain. We saw that last week. And yet the pattern still remains for us today. God, God expects his rescued people to respond by following his patterns for life. I do wonder this morning if this is a hallmark of our relationship with God. Taking his word, his commands, his law seriously. Seeking to obey them in our lives and practice. Or I wonder if we've settled for some kind of easy truce with disobedience in our lives. Perhaps as a younger Christian, we were, we were ready to jump into the fight against our disobedience and our sin, but are we still fighting? Lust? The, the gossiping tongue? A willingness to indulge in self-pity or a judgmental spirit? We used to read God's word with such hunger, desperate to live his way. But over the years, maybe we've just slipped in our clarity of the urgency with which we should go about living his way in our lives. I wonder if, um, as Christians, we treat our hearts a bit like how I treat my home. 
I don't know if this is how your home works, but um, back at our house, uh, we have a number of rooms on the ground floor which, um, whilst not always tidy, can become more presentable quite quickly if people come around. You know, they, they scrub up quite well. But um, upstairs or in the garage or away from the public eye, there are lots of rooms which are not quite as uh, well arranged. And um, you know, we, we kind of close the door and leave them to one side, thinking, well, no one can see them. It's okay if they're just there. That's how often our homes work, but when our hearts work that way as Christians, it's a serious thing. I think as Christians, we can often focus on the externals and the things that people can see, and we make sure we work hard to do the right thing and say the right thing, but in our hearts, there are rooms and compartments and places that we have long since left abandoned, uncared for, and we just don't fight anymore. But the God of Exodus wants a people who wholeheartedly say yes to his ways, his laws, It's been interesting to talk to a number of people um, during this uh, little series as we've looked at the kind of God we encounter at the mountain. He is a holy, awesome, fearful God. And I think rightly so, together we've been trying to think through, well, what role does fear of that kind of God play in our lives now as Christians? On one hand, and we'll see, yes, we'll forgive him, and yet he is still a holy, awesome, fearful God. And I think we've been seeing that there is a right kind of fear that we should have of God. We should be in awe of him. We shouldn't play loose and fast with his patterns for our lives. There is a healthy fear that uh, leads us to being careful with our lives, longing to put things right where they're not. I think that is the dynamic at work here in Exodus 24. The people have seen God's mountain they respond with willful obedience that's our first hallmark of a people in relationship with God Um, the book following God's pattern I have to say though that (laughs) it's not very comfortable reading I um, this week I've been working through the chapter and I've looked at my own life and I've sort of squirmed as I've looked at this is the right response willful obedience and yet I know in my own life I'm so far often from that willful and wholehearted response and I guess I'm not alone and we are bound to wonder what happens when we don't obey God's law fully and that is where we come to our second hallmark the blood trusting in God's provision there's a lot of blood in Exodus 24 verse 4 Straight away, after confirming the words and law of God, Moses has an altar built and then 12 stone pillars set up. The pillars, we're told, represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. And I think it's right that the altar represents God, the the, the two parties in this covenant relationship. And then the bulls are sacrificed, a lot of bulls. There's enough blood shed to cover the altar with blood, verse 6, but also enough blood to set aside Uh, bulls filled with blood that will be used later on verse 8 to sprinkle over all the people (coughs) it would have been an an horrific sight it's hard even to imagine the the death uh, and the process and then the, the, the thousands of people gathered around and just 
the blood being sprinkled and splashed and poured everywhere. It would have been horrific. You can hardly imagine that happening at a different kind of ceremony. Think of it at a wedding. Poppers, confetti, rose petals. You can imagine this scene. It's, it's gruesome. It's terrible. Why? Why so much blood? Well, we're given clues. The last time we saw blood being sprinkled was back in Exodus 12 as God prepared his people to survive his Passover in Egypt. The only way to avoid God's judgment and therefore death was to be in a house where the doorposts had been sprinkled with blood. You had to be associated with the death of an animal to escape your own death. And here, Exodus 24, I think the same pattern is at work. The only way to avoid judgment and death is to be a person sprinkled by blood. Notice how the structure works in 24. Uh, The people agree, verse 3, to obey. Then comes the blood. The people agree to obey again, verse 7. And then verse 8. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all those words. Obedience blood obedience blood it seems that the blood of uh, shed here is God's provision to deal with the problem of the people's inevitable disobedience our reading from Hebrews 9 the second reading confirms that this is the case it it picks up the very scene described here in Exodus 24 as 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 the people of God are, are welcomed into a covenant and um, as, as we read about this covenant, we discover that the only way it's going to work is if blood is shed. But in the old covenant, here in Exodus 24, the bloodshed is not sufficient to cleanse God's people from their sin. But we discover that in Christ, we have a new covenant where a different kind of blood is shed and where there is true, lasting, full, complete forgiveness. And so Moses says, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So that's the author of Hebrews, not Moses saying that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is what's happening here in Exodus 24. The penalty for our sin is is death. That is how holy and awesome God is. And if there is to be forgiveness, a death must occur. In Exodus 24, it was the death of a bull on behalf of the people, pointing us forward to the death of Christ who comes and sprinkles us with a blood which is able to do that work which no animal could do for us. And so centuries later when Jesus gathered his disciples for that famous final meal before the Passover, remember those words from Luke's gospel, Luke 22 verse 20. Jesus said, "I." in the same way after supper he took the cup saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Words taken straight from Exodus 24, verse 8. But this time, do you see, it's not the blood of bulls, it's the blood of Jesus being offered in our place. We are seeing here, though, in Exodus 24, that right at the heart of our relationship between God and his people, there must be blood God's provision. I wonder for us this morning, perhaps some of us have uh, dragged ourselves here, 
painfully aware, aware of how we have dissipated God this week, aware of our sin. And, and maybe we even in two minds are willing to come this morning thinking, I, I, just, I just don't belong there. Or I'm just worried about meeting other Christians and having to, to sort of look at them in the face. Or what if someone knows about what I've done this week? Well, Exodus 24 would show us, I think, that God does know what we've done last week. He does care about what we've done last week. But he knew all along that we would sin. And so before his, this people sinned in Exodus 24, he provided blood to cover all the sin. And so if that is you this morning, if you've dragged yourself here this morning thinking, I don't belong here, I'm not good enough, Exodus 24 says, the blood covers the sin. Don't run from God in fear. Come running back to God because there has been blood shed for you. Here is the pattern of Exodus 24. As one preacher put it a while ago, the internal combustion engine of the Christian heart that that drives us forward is this daily, regular, ongoing cycle of despair over our hearts and our sin. And then delight that blood has been shed on our behalf. That's the Christian life. That is right at the heart of Exodus 24. The blood, trusting in God's provision. I think at times that uh, we're so quick to stress God's mercy with people that we say, well, it doesn't really matter how we live, just just come and um, God will forgive you. But the pattern here in Exodus 24 is not to deny the importance of obedience, but rather it is at the same time to elevate the significance of the blood. You see, both matter crucially. And so as Christians, we are to take our obedience very seriously, at the same time knowing it is always only because of the blood that we are forgiven. Our final little hallmark of a people relating to God, the banquet, longing for God's presence. Our chapter begins with Moses and Aaron and a number of the key elders of the people preparing to climb the mountain of God. But notice, as as we've seen consistently, this mountain is a place of great fear. And so we read in verse one that um, they are to worship at a distance Or or verse two, Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must stay far away. The people cannot come close. Have you ever seen one of those um, clips of a group of mountaineers at base camp around Everest preparing to climb from base camp up to the top of the mountain? You often see as the group prepares, if it's their first time particularly, you'll see them looking excited, yes, but there's also, they're often very quiet, very somber, you can tell that they are aware of how dangerous the coming journey is going to be. People die on the mountain. And so as they prepare to climb, they do so carefully and and dare I say it, nervously. I think that's the picture, the mood in the camp in Exodus 24 verses one and two, this climbing group, you can imagine them strapping on their boots, not really talking, not really saying much, Nervous, worried, not because of snow and ice, but because they are about to approach the living, holy, awesome God who dwells on the mountain. 
But after verse two, the camera zooms away. <laughs> zooms away from the climbing expedition and we we then focus on the book and the bloods. But then verse nine, we come back to the original climbing party as they go up to the mountain. And the structure is important, I think. We have the announcement of the journey followed by the actual journey because in the middle comes the blood. And this group wouldn't be able to go up the mountain unless there had been blood shed for them. And they go up as those covered by the blood. And what happens as they go up the mountain, well, it's truly remarkable. Who would have thought, verse 10, this group saw the God of Israel. Verse 11, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. This is the most remarkable and precarious moments in the course of human history. Humans able to Enter into God's presence. We might be thinking, how is it possible? We read elsewhere in the Bible that no one can see God and live. In fact, in Exodus 32, verse 20, we find that, that no one can do this. But, and so how is it possible here in 24 for these elders to, to come and see God? Well, I think, yes, the blood is absolutely crucial by way of context. Um, But I think also we get a hint of what actually happens in verse 10. Different commentators have their own views on this. But I think, for me, what's happening here is quite clear. Verse 10, they see God, but what they then describe is not a a vision of God's or or a description of God, but rather, verse 10, under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. See, these elders, they don't describe God. They describe the floor under God's feet, because I think as they shuffle into God's presence, their, their heads are bowed and they, they don't look up any further than the floor. And so perhaps they see God's feet, but nothing more. In that sense, they see God, but yet they can't look at him fully. And then what happens next is truly extraordinary. Verse 11, they saw God and they ate and drank. To share a meal with someone is an intimate thing. It's a way of sharing fellowship. And here we have, in this most extraordinary moment, God coming and offering meal, fellowship with, with people like us, people like Israel. And for just a brief moment in time, a covenant's been cut and there's been no sin. Humanity is welcomed into the radio, the the nuclear reactive presence of God, able to enjoy his fellowship, yet not consumed. Of course, the next time we see the people of God eating and drinking a meal together, well, they're not in the presence of God. They are in the presence of a golden calf, wretchedly spurning his offer of fellowship. But let us not rush forward too quickly. Here in the mountain, for this little moment, we see the goal of the covenant. God and his people sharing fellowship together, around a meal. Some 800 years later, the prophet Isaiah was describing for us a picture of a world put right, and he uses remarkable language. He says in Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. 
You see, on this mountain that Isaiah saw, it wasn't just the elders, but all the people gathered. And this mountain of Isaiah will be an eternal mountain. There'll be no death. There'll be no uh, suffering or tears. It'll be a, it's a picture of eternal fellowship with God on the mountain, forever sharing this sense of intimacy with the Lord. And this is the goal of salvation for God's people. Able to enjoy a banquet with the Lord. Enjoying God's fellowship and God's presence. And for just the briefest moment in Exodus 24, we see it happening. Before it all comes crashing down in the next chapters. But as Christians, we look forward to a certain day that's already in the diary. That will happen when when Christ returns and there is another banquet. There is a wedding feast. Revelation 19 verse 9. uh, There will be an offer to come. And to enjoy the wedding banquet. Blessed is the one who is invited. And so as we close. Christian. Is this our goal in life? Do we long to be in God's presence. And enjoying fellowship with him. We taste in part what we will taste fully then. In Christ now we do have access to God. But then we will see him face to face. And share a meal with him. It'll be wonderful. I think so often as Christians we get so preoccupied with the here and now. Sunday lunch. A nap. um, Strictly come dancing on Saturday night. But here is the longing for the Christian. Longing to be in God's presence. Enjoying fellowship with him. (coughs) Weddings are a day of joy but also a day of comparison. And I reckon before Christ returns, we will all in different ways find that comparison difficult. There'll be sorrow and hollowness and brokenness and frustration. But there is a wedding coming. There is a meal that will happen when all of God's people are gathered around the throne of glory. There'll be a banquet of feast and there'll be no tears, no crying, no envy, no comparison as God brings his people back into his presence for fellowship. We have a meal to enjoy this morning, a meal of bread and wine. It reminds us of how Christ gave his body and his blood for us to bring us forgiveness. But as we come this morning to share this wonderful meal, can I suggest that whilst we look back at the cross and rejoice, can I also encourage us to look forward to that meal that will happen when Christ returns? Because in the moments now, we remember Jesus, but in that moment then, we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this picture of a people dwelling in a relationship with you. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, you knew straight from the beginning that blood would have to be shed in order for your people to come and dwell in your presence. Father, please help us to rejoice in that blood shed for us, the, the blood of Christ. Thank you that we have been welcomed into your presence through his blood. Father, please also make us a people who care a very great deal about living a life that follows your pattern in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.